we're going to go into heaven for a little bit. But I know it's going to be somewhat of a disappointment because you're going to come out of heaven. But we'll get you back in there next week and the week after. I, I was wondering, how should I approach this? Do I approach it like a tour guide, you know, and I'm going to take you through the various things that we see there and, and, and try to point out, you know, well, let's stop at this place and here and let's get out of the bus and let's take a look at what we see. I could do that. But folks, this is incredible stuff that we have in front of us. This is where we're going to be spending eternity with our great God and Savior, if we know Him. That's the critical part, if we know Him. Um, and folks, just to even begin this, it is, is overwhelming to try to think that I could even say the right words that, that would be enough for you to see heaven, enjoy heaven, and want to be in heaven. Somebody I once witnessed to said, why would I want to be there? I can do whatever I can. I, I want in hell. I said, no, you can't do whatever you want in hell. But here you'll be able to rejoice with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the, the creator of this world. So let's start with prayer, and then we'll go from there. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Lord, as I've looked at this for the last few weeks and uh, just been convinced, Lord, that uh, you are calling us there. You want us there. And that call is soon. It's going to happen soon. And so, Lord, we look forward to it, look forward to all that you're doing for us, even in the issues and the problems that people have. You're, you're solving those through other people. And we thank you for that in your name. Amen. Now, if you have been a Christian for any length of time, uh, you've heard lots of preaching, whether it be here at Grace Church or at other churches. You've heard lots of teaching that's gone on. You've heard this one subject that they would want you to come to Jesus Christ. You've heard that over and over again. I don't care where you've been, uh, whatever kind of church you've come from. I heard Calvary Chapel here earlier, Bible Church. Uh, charismatic church, I don't care where it is, I come to Jesus Christ. Uh, this last couple of weeks, they've had this big conference there in Rome, Italy, and uh, they've had 13,000 people show up two days. I, I was speaking to uh, Caesar uh, Albanese in Italy, and they had two days of 13,000 people show up to listen to um, uh, Franklin Graham giving the gospel message. I know he called them to come to Jesus. That's what, is hap that's what would happen. But first, folks, we need to realize that you have to come to Jesus in salvation. True salvation, genuine salvation. And second, you come to him in sanctification. Once you are saved, you need to continue to grow in your sanctification. That's part of the Christian life. You're called to do that. The verse coming to Jesus is because he has chosen you. So many people think, oh, I chose him. No, you did not. He chose you. How do I know that? You don't need to turn there, but you can jot this verse down. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The Father made the choice will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So you have that assurance that God's calling you and did call you, and he's not going to cast you out. It's pretty clear. It's unmistakable that God is in the business of bringing his children to himself. But this whole world is not his children. Frankly, folks, I, I, I dare say not everybody in this room has been saved. I, I, this large a, a group of people, there are some people here that may be fooling themselves, that, that think because they go to church that they are saved. But this is a call to the Lord Jesus Christ. This coming to Christ is, is because the sinner realizes their need of salvation. When that happened for me, I was begging God on a hotel room floor, save me. I have no idea what that means. But my life is miserable. I, I felt bankrupt. And that's what happens when you come to Christ. You realize you're bankrupt, character, person, and that you need something to save you. 
that's coming to Jesus Christ, a sinner realizes their need of salvation. Salvation from what? Their salvation from sin. And that's, that is something that we do every single day. The only ones that will come to the Father because of Jesus Christ are those that are His. Now, some people say, well, I don't know if I'm His. Or uh, my wife's aunt for 30 years kept saying, well, I, I don't know that I'm uh, chosen. I don't know that I'm chosen. And folks, it's a matter of belief, putting faith. Romans t- uh, 10 9 and 10, that if you with your mouth confess him as Lord and Savior, that's what you have to do. But it's not just that, it's coming to him. Those who have, because of these extraordinary mercy of God, will then have eternal bliss. The eternal bliss that we're speaking out that happens in heaven. Why do I bring up this coming to Christ when we're going to look at heaven? Because only the people who are his are going to be in heaven. Very selective, folks. Very selective. And frankly, I want everyone here to be with me. Believe it or not, I love each and every one of you. Even those who are (laughs) a little bit tense at times. Still love all of you. To see you all there is beyond the sin that's now in your life. Folks, this world that we are in is full of sin, it is full of hate, and it's full of ugliness. This world is full of hate and jealousy and deceit. This world full of lies. Folks, if you do not know this by now, and, and I think you do, this world is falling apart. This world is falling apart. I remember as a, as a little kid, my, my parents saying to me in the morning after they gave me breakfast, we'll see you at dinner. And I go out the whole day and play ball and, and ride my bicycle and, and not have to worry about anything. I, I, my, my grandkids can't go out of the house and do those kinds of things because there's danger everywhere. There are people there that have evil in their hearts. So this world is falling apart. And if I could put it this way, and, and please excuse the uh, uh, metaphor here, it's disintegrating in a proverbial toilet. That's what it is. We have wars all over the place, not just the two that you know about. There are more going on. There are tribes all over the place that are fighting one another. There's rumors of wars, there's plagues, and there's rumors of plagues. Is there ever any news that you can believe. I sit there when I watch the news and I say, I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I believe that. I call my friends up that are in Israel. I said, come on, tell me what's really happening. Or my friends in Ukraine, which thank you for coming here today from Ukraine. I've been there seven times. I want to hear about what's happening to my friends there. Because we are earthbound, it's so hard to see heaven. It's so hard to see heaven. You see, what a total disconnect we have in our personal reality of something that's beyond us. Your imagination can't imagine this well enough. Because you are earthbound at this point, you cannot even imagine what that experience is going to be like. It is truly Truly, beyond contemplation and imagination. Don't turn there. Again, Paul said this in Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. I think Paul sets that there in Colossians 3 because he's wanting us to think about not the sin that's on this earth, not the sin even that we participate in, but look at what Christ has for you. Obviously, he's directing his readers to think about heaven. Also, because you are an earthly creature, I want you to look at these next few weeks, you've got three weeks, with amazement at what God is going to say here, what what John is saying here. It, It is amazing. It is full of wonder. It's full of grandeur. For us earthbound creatures, it is so difficult to envision an eternal perfect heaven. 
with no sin. We're not going to sin against each other. We're going to love each other. We have never experienced that perfection. And I even used that little baby this week. I've been teaching on parenting in the, in the uh, Tuesday night. And, and I said, even from the moment they're born, they start demanding. How do I know? Because I hear the screams. And they're saying, give me some milk. <laughs> so they start right from the beginning. So sin there is a demand. Or I should say the, the life there, beginning, it begins with a, a sin. Open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Let's get started looking at this beautiful piece of, of wonderful communication to us. And in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the, door, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had the face of that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four are living creatures, each one of them, having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who gives forever, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. What a picture. What a picture. John is giving us an incredible picture. And, and he's not finished because we have chapter 5 to look at as well. Come up here. Folks, these are words that if you were to hear the Lord calling you, you're not going to wait for the second time that he calls you. You're coming up there. I, 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 frankly, folks, I would ha I'd love to have it happen now a and that we'd all be taken in the rapture. That'd be great. Come up here. Those are lovely words. But we need to give some of the background to those words. Those are words I look forward to hearing. Those are words that I pray that my family and my family here of Christ would all hear. Come up here. But first, we start with the, the text there, and it says in verse 1, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. This grammatical introduction is used often in the scriptures in Revelation. It's used be, basically to introduce a new vision. Let me give you some of the places where that happens. Revelation 7.1, it says, After these things I saw four angels. In 7.9, it says this, After these things I looked. In 15.5, it says, after these things, the tabernacle of testimony was opened. And in 18.1, it says, after these things, I saw another angel. So it's basically going from vision to vision to vision and trying to give us a division for that particular presentation of a vision. 
Now back to our text. What things is the first question? After these things, when I um, study, when I try to put a message together to try to explain what the, the scripture is, I'm trying to uncover what is being said there. And so I came to this, what things is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the things he spoke about, well, that we looked at a month ago. That's the first vision. He's talking, after that, this is what happened. And just to remind you, these are some of the things that happened. In Ephesus, he removed their lampstand. That's what Christ did. In Smyrna, he gives the crown of life to those who are there. In Pergamum, he instructs them to repent or he is coming. And and frankly, I think he does that even today with some churches. He's begging them to repent, and if he doesn't, he's going to destroy them. Remember the church that was down on, I think it was Roscoe Boulevard here, and when the seminary first opened up, one of our seminary uh, graduates is in there teaching the word of God. After he left, closed up, and it became a Hindu temple. How can that be, that the church would close? Well, the word of God wasn't taught there anymore. Then in Thyatira, he will cast them out upon a bed of sickness. That means death. In Sardis, Sardis, he will come like a thief, and he's going to judge them. And in Philadelphia, he will keep them from the hour of testing. And in Laodicea, he says, and he gives them some hope there, he who overcomes will be allowed to enter through the throne room. After these things is that literary device to let us know that he's moving on to something new. This is a new vision. After these things I looked and behold a, a door standing open in heaven. The door, the Lord promised an open door to the church of Philadelphia. That's what he promises to all believers, an open door. Obviously the opening and closing of a door is a prominent subject for entrance or non-entrance into the kingdom of God. Either the door is going to be open for you or it's not going to be open. One or the other. But if that door is open, what wonder, what majesty, what incredible sights you will see. You can't even comprehend those sights. At this door, he's at the throne room of heaven. When you are just at the door, sometimes you don't get to see everything around. You just get to see what's in front of you. And what he sees in front of him is that throne, and we'll get there. In uh, Genesis 28, 17, someone else had been in the same place. In Genesis 28, 17, there was a similar experience. This was an experience that was had by Jacob. And Jacob is explains it this way. He says, how awesome is this place? What he's seeing there, it it is awesome. I've never seen some of the things that we just read there, the the creatures that were explained. I've never seen that. I've never seen such light and magnificence, uh, things like that. He says, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. You know, even in that exclamation, it doesn't do justice. It doesn't do justice to what is seen. You cannot put it into words. It's something beyond us. It has such grandeur that we cannot explain it. After this little introduction about the doors and the voice speaking, the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet, was speaking to me. That first voice was there. By way of reminder, back in Revelation 1.10 when we looked at it, that first voice was introduced to that, but uh, was a trumpet. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. It's like, I know you would never have heard this, but a police officer once did pull me over. Okay, I was leaving Grace Church going out for lunch. I had other pastors in the car. And this police car just kept following me and following me and following me until we got to the restaurant. And I hear in the bullhorn, get out of the car, put your hands on the roof. I go, what did I do? I I get out and I put my hands on the roof and there was Shelly Gale. (laughs) Uh, Used to be a member of Grace Church. 
and was an LAPD guy. Thanks a lot, Shelly. I had this heart going a little bit. <laughs> That's the sound of the voice, folks. It's going to get your heart pumping if you have a heart. You're going to get excited about it. It doesn't just happen. You see this and you go, oh my, how can this be? The door of heaven is open. I imagine, I'm not John, but I imagine the tingling that must have gone through his body just knowing where he was. Just knowing what was happening at that point. I, I get shivers even thinking about it sometimes myself. This man who has endured years of rejection. This man who has endured persecution. He's on the island of Patmos because he's being persecuted. This man who was a friend of Jesus, who was able to put his head on his breast, he was able to do those things. He now is at the door of heaven. His faith has now been given sight. That's where he is. He is, there is a door. One side, sinful earth, the pain, the suffering, the disappointment. The other side, blissful heaven, where there's no pain, no sorrow, no tears, and no sin. The door that, that, that John sees is going to allow him not only to look into heaven, but also to enter heaven. What a euphoric event. What an incredible event. What elation, what excitement must have been going through the apostle's mind. One of the things that I cannot imagine is that on one side of the door, there is a universe that is bound by time. You are bound by time. We have to be out of here by a certain time. I'm going to take that one because it gives me more time. But that's what it is. We're bound by time. On the other side, once he gets into heaven, it's timeless. There is no time there. God exists in timelessness. This side, one side, there's never enough time to get it all done. That's what we we always say. We get exhausted by the end of the day. I didn't get everything done I wanted to. That's what happens. I always say when I leave my office, oh, I have something else to do tomorrow when I come in. I'll leave it there. Got it. On the other side of the door, there is no time. You are not bound by time. It is timeless. On this side of the door of timelessness, there's endless worship of the king. It is going on all the time. It's praise and honor to the one who has saved you. And, and it's done without abatement. It goes on and on and on. John is invited into heaven, or at least I have a heavenly perspective here. It says this, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Uh, again, you don't have to be invited twice for something like this. Just one invitation. John is now given access to things that were going to take place in the future. Things that, even when he's writing them, he cannot imagine what some of those things are. I mean, how, how do you give the picture of some of those things that are going to happen to the book of Revelation toward, towards the end? There, It's an impossibility. But he tries to give as good a picture as he possibly can. But he's given access to those things that are going to happen in the future. What kind of things is John shown at first? First, he's given access, he's going into heaven. More specifically, what must take place after these things? That's what he's seeing. What's going to take place? He's commissioned here to write. We see that in Revelation 119. I just, just briefly, because we've been away from this for a while. But 119, it says, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and that means present, and the things which will take place after these things. That's what he's writing here in the text, the things that are being uncovered for him by God at this point. One commentator put it this way, he says, the visions that John is permitted to see include both realized and unrealized events. They refer to the past and present and comprise the future. So that's what John has been giving this picture of. 
you know, we, we see some science fiction movies nowadays where they try to com- give us a picture of what's going to happen in the future. It, it's all fantasy. It's all fantasy. Revelation 4.2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. I mean, we could stop right there, folks. He's in the Spirit, and he sees God Almighty sitting on the throne. What an absolutely spectacular occasion. John is transported both in time and space to the threshold of heaven. He is now in the throne room of God, particularly, and I'm going to say this, and I can be corrected, he's transported there, and it is the end of the age. That's what I'm, I'm, in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking he knows this is the end of the age. This is what it's going to look like because he gets to see everything in Revelation, that it is the end of the age. In a sense, John is experiencing his own private rapture here. John was in the spirit. There is only one way for John to experience this, and that is in the spirit, not any other way. John sees a throne. He, he sees someone sitting on that throne. More than likely, folks, this is the throne room of judgment. This is a throne room of judgment. I, I just want you to understand, as believers, you will be standing before this throne. It's hard to believe, but, but I'm a Christian and all my sins are paid for. Yes, they are paid for. But there's still a throne room of judgment. How do I know? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Why don't you turn there? Second Corinthians chapter five and verse ten. For we must all, not some, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Some people may say, but but that, that could be an unbeliever. No, it can't. You know why? An unbeliever can't do good. Now, here's the difference. We talked about police officers before. Police officers there protect you. Yes, the officer who does it, who doesn't know Christ, is doing it so that he gets a better position, he's getting a better job, or it makes himself feel better. He's not doing it for the glory of God. The Christian police officer is the one who's doing it for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That's what you should be doing. So how do I know? It's, it, this is for the believer. According to what he has done, whether good or bad. You can go to 1 Corinthians 3 and there's talk about, you know, the, the good deeds that we have and all of those kinds of things. We cast our crowns before the throne. Yeah, that's part of it. That's what you're going to see there is that kind of action happening. But you know what? Some of it's burnt up, wood, hay, and stubble. So realize this is what's going to happen. While we understand from God's word that believers will be in heaven because of the work of Jesus Christ... There is still a judgment, still a judgment for those good things and those bad things. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And I may spend a little bit of time on this because I want you to understand that. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. Matthew 12, 36. But I tell you, that every careless word that people speak... Have you ever had one of those? I had one in 1912. Uh, I mean, I probably had one this morning when I said to my wife, we only have 45 minutes to get to church. I mean, I don't know. You, you have careless words that come out of your mouth. Matthew 12, 36. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. Yee. I mean, I think of that and go, I am in trouble. I am so glad that Jesus took my sins. I am so glad. Uh, look with me at Colossians chapter 3. 
Colossians 3, 24. Colossians 3:24. And it says there, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he, this is verse 25, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. In other words, he's not going to look at one differently than another. He's going to give good to those who did good, and then there's going to be a consequence. Now, I don't know what those consequences are, and that's not what this study is about, but it's going to happen. Folks, Working out your salvation, Philippians 2.12, with fear and trembling is what we should be in the midst of. I had, I had a long conversation with one of our graduates this week, and um, he's of the uh, um, opinion that it's all grace. Yeah, God's given you grace. didn't strike you dead because of what you did. I, I, it is all grace. I understand that. But there is still an accounting that must be done at the end of the age. And I want to make sure, the best I can, that I'm acceptable. The other thing I mean, you think about is, is Hebrews 13, 17. It says to obey your leaders, but it doesn't stop there. It then says to the leaders, for you will give an account for the souls that are under you. That's scary. That's scary. Because then I'm accountable for all that is here. Folks, our God is gracious and wonderful. And when we get to heaven, we'll see how gracious and wonderful he truly is. But for now, we need to be working out that salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is in you to work and to will his good pleasure. He's at work in you. He's growing you. So what does John see? John sees this throne, and he sees God sitting on the throne. He's not the first one to have this kind of vision. Isaiah 6.1. Isaiah had that same kind of vision. You don't need to turn there, but listen to this. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. So he saw him there. He's not the only one. Psalm 48, I love this. Psalm 47, I mean. In Europe, it's 48, but here it's 47. Forty-seven, eight. It says, God reigns over the nations and sits on his holy throne. That's where he is. He, he doesn't have to move from that throne. He is everywhere. That, that person that we're speaking of is there. Does John give a full orb description of what he saw? No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. How could you? How could you give a picture of the glory of God? It is impossible to do that. He's at the throne. He sees the throne. He sees the one sitting on the throne, but it's impossible. And you know what? There's one other thing that he may not want to give us a full orb description of the throne or the person sitting on the throne is because there is a commandment that you are not to make a likeness of God. We see that in uh, Exodus 20, verse 4, where it says, do not make a likeness of God. And, and if he's going to write that down, he's going to be making a, a likeness of God in words. And so he doesn't do that. So we have to be careful. Maybe that's why John did that. But let's move on to uh, Revelation 4, 3. Revelation 4, 3, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. John's reaction to what he saw was to describe the light of God. That's what he did. He described the light of God. For God, we know, is light. He, he, he gives the words here, the jaspis and sardius stone. Their brilliance gives us a picture of the dazzling light. Now, I do believe that the sardius and 
jasper stone that he saw up in heaven are different than the ones that we have today because they're not um, uh, expensive jewelry. At least I don't think they are. Uh, uh, not, not like maybe a dazzling diamond or something. You see, but this is what he's really trying to show us is their brilliance gives us a picture of dazzling light. There's this, it's awesome. This light just fills the room. Um, just recently, Grace Church up in the office center redid their ceiling and put in new lighting. I walk in there and I'm like, whoa, look at this light. I can finally see. 35 years I haven't been able to see. No. But it's dazzling in there because of the light. Can you imagine being in heaven with God? You think the sun is strong? He created it. It's going to be dazzling. Absolutely incredible. This is where we need to know what these stones represent. And we're going to give you a little bit of a picture of them. The jasper stone comes from a a Hebrew word. And the root word there means to be bright. Could you figure that out? Huh? It is a stone that reflects light, seemingly causing it to be even brighter than it really is. That's what it does. That's what a jasper stone does. In Revelation 21.11... John uses the jasper stone, listen to this, to describe the heavenly city, Jerusalem, coming down. Listen to this. You don't need to turn there. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. So you can see John is consistent. That which is crystal clear, that which is, gives off much light, that's the description of this stone. The description is beyond the description of today's jasper for sure. The brilliance of this stone is often compared to priceless diamonds. The idea is that this is unapproachable light. We've seen those words before in Scripture where we cannot approach. Remember, Moses was not to approach. He had unapproachable light there. You weren't supposed to do that. He had the brilliance of God around him at one point. But turn to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. And I know I'm putting you to work today, but, you know, I think it's good. Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. So, we have brilliant light there. That is a description of what, who God is. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 6, also in the New Testament. By the way, there are other places we could go to, but I just wanted to pick out one or two. 1 Timothy 6. And in 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse, well, verse 16, it says this, Who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man can see, has seen, or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. So that's a description of God. No man has seen, nor can a man see. So here we have John trying to give a description of God sitting on the throne, and what does he do? He just calls him light, brilliant light. He can't get down to the finer things, but that's what he gives us. Now, the the sardius stone, which I've ignored so far, represents the glory of God. That's basically what it does. It's um, um, a wonderful red ruby stone And actually, it looks fiery, and when you put light on it, it makes it look even more brilliant. That's what he looks like. But there's something else that's here, and I find this quite interesting. I have theories of why it's here. But let's look at what it is. And then around the throne was a rainbow. Now, you and I know what a rainbow is. 
Uh, uh, we had a beautiful one when we were away with our granddaughter. It's just absolutely gorgeous. It, but this one is different. It's full-orbed. Um, in other words, it's all the way around <clears throat> in appearance, and it's green. When you look at a rainbow, you don't see green. Now, some have called this the judgment of God. In other words, the green light is on, go for it. That this is what it is. It's, it's declaring to humanity that the judgment is coming. Well, because I wouldn't get too far away from that thought. I believe that it is about judgment. In Noah's day, obviously it was a picture of judgment. In Ezekiel's day, and I will just take one quick look at Ezekiel 1, 28. Ezekiel Daniel, for those who are looking for it. Ezekiel 1, 28. This is fabulous. And Ezekiel says this, As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. It has to do with God and his interaction with humanity. I also believe that this is the initiation of the new kingdom here. But that's something... We'll probably get into later on. At least that's what I'm, I'm believing because all of this has to point to something new and better. So in this passage, it has the same meaning. God is about to judge mankind. Uh, just recently, Jeremiah has been doing advertisements or doing some book uh, advertisements uh, about his book about the rapture and you know you see a bunch of people there and all of a sudden you see half of them there and you see a gal that's on the operating table and she's raptured and the doctor's turned around and she's not there i mean i thought that was a good one <laughs> and, and you see all of these different things yeah it's like the green light of judgment has been turned on and it's not that far away now there is one very important observation to make at this point. If you were to walk into the presence of the Almighty God, how would you describe it? I, I would think would, you wouldn't use costly gems. I, I just, just a guess. Unless you were a jeweler. Okay. Would you use light reflected from those gems? Maybe. Many of the commentators go in either of those directions. And while they are correct to a degree, they cannot describe what John saw. I mean, I sometimes think it's pathetic where commentators come behind what's being said there and try to actually put into his mind, their mind, what John is seeing. Because they don't see what John is seeing. It's an impossibility. John was overwhelmed with what he was seeing. He was grasping at pictures to give to others at what he was seeing. It's hard for him to relate this to us. Frankly, it's hard for us to take it in. Revelation 4.4 gives us a little bit of a a fuller picture here. Revelation 4.4 says this, Around the throne, this is that one throne, were twenty. Four thrones upon the thrones I saw. Twenty-four elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Our speaker for this weekend asked me, so who are the 24 thrones? I said, it's easy. It's the New York Yankees winning the World Series. (laughs) And you know what? I was shocked. He said, no, the Yankees won 27, not 24. (laughs) I, Brian impressed me, i got to tell you, with knowing that fact. Folks, I, I was jokingly giving that as an answer, obviously. From the description that we have here, these 24 thrones are lesser than the one throne because he sees that one throne first and the 24 around it, he doesn't see them until later. 
he first notices the one, and he calls them now 24 elders sitting on the throne. Well, from that particular word, presbyteroi, it's telling us that they are men. They are men. They're, not, they're just men. They're not angels because somebody said, oh, maybe they're angels. Angels are not going to judge us, folks. Angels are not going to do any judgment. That particular word is always for men. So who are these men? They're clothed in white garments. What does that mean, folks? Every time white garments is used, it's talking about redeemed saints. That's what it's talking about, is redeemed saints. So if you have this picture of these redeemed saints around there, and they're 24 men, who could they be? Keep thinking about that. The other observation that we can make there is that they're wearing golden crowns. Hmm. By the way, you will be given a crown for your existence here on earth. If you're saved, you will have a crown. You'll be able to throw it before the Lord. That will happen. The, the, the observation here of these golden crowns means that they have some kind of a symbol of authority. But authority over who? Authority over what? We don't have a clue. There's nothing being said here. It's authority that's been given to them by Jesus. Let me just give you a few passages there in Revelation. Chapter 20, verse 4. <clears throat> And Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, it says this, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." So they're human beings, men. Here's another one in Revelation 20, verse 6. Just down a couple of verses. <clears throat> Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So they're going to be there. They're going to be reigning. They're going to have some kind of authority. But who are they? Who are they? 24 elders, representatives of people, redeemed people. Who are they? Somebody said to me, well, they're the 12 apostles. Hmm, really? We had more than 12. Paul was an apostle after Matthias had been added to the 12. So you have more there. So that doesn't work. And Oh, the 12 tribes of Israel. As much as I love the Jewish people, they wound up splitting a tribe, and they wound up doing this, and they had all different kinds of tribes. So when was it? Folks, I think we have to rest with the idea that the 24 representatives are representatives of us, redeemed people. They're not angels. They're there to um, oversee what's being done. And they're, they're picked out for whatever reason that God wants to pick them out. And I'm not going to question him. But let's give you some pictures of the elders. Uh, Revelation 5.14. Revelation 5.14. The four living creatures kept saying amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. So they're worshipping God. That's what they do. Revelation 11.16. 11.16. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. That tells you what they're saying when they worship God just below that. And Revelation 19.4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne. Amen. Hallelujah. So they're there to worship God. They're there to, to bring attention to all that he has done. Folks, I started this message by saying, Jesus calls us. He calls you. We're not going to be able to finish this tour bus ride. 
this week. We have to go to next week and probably the week after. I'm just trying to time it so when Pastor MacArthur comes back, he, we're not preaching the same message at the same time. <laughs> I did that once on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and I did the, he did the 7 o'clock message. I sat in there. He preached the exact same message. <laughs> Do you know how humbling that is? <laughs> And, of course, I told my Sunday school class, obviously, you need this. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, I started out by he's calling his people to himself, come to me. And I think of of, uh, Matthew, where he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I know some of you are. I, I read the prayer cards yesterday when I was praying. Some of you are weary and heavy laden. And he says, come to me. I will give you rest. Does that mean he's going to wipe out your problems? No, it doesn't. But it does mean that you have somebody who is there for you. Somebody who can hear your anguish, your pain. Somebody who wants you to bow your knees and say, I need you. It's not about me. I need you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful picture of heaven, this beautiful picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ, what God in in heaven is doing, what the Holy Spirit is going to do. We're even going to see that next week where the Holy Spirit participates in heaven. Lord God, thank you for all that you do for us. We are feeble. We are anxious. We are hungry. We are in need of a great God to be able to fill that hunger with the thoughts of the word and the spirit of the word. And Father God, I pray for each and every person that's here today that they would yearn for heaven even more today. I pray that you would give them all complete and full assurance of their salvation. Pray this in your name. Amen.